Welcome to the Wanting It More podcast. I am your host, Jana Denton-Howes, and it's an absolute delight to have you here. I'm a marriage and intimacy educator, as well as a creator of the Wanting It More program, which has helped thousands of women who are married to men want and enjoy it more in the bedroom. You know, having low desire was something that I personally struggled with for years in my marriage, so I absolutely get it all. You are not alone. Just a heads up, I use all the words in this podcast, so if you've got little ears around or you're in public setting, you may want to pop in some earbuds. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Wanting It More podcast. I have a special treat for you today because this is my first guest expert interview. And I'm really, really glad that we're starting on this topic because painful sex is something that I see so many women suffering from, usually for a really long time and often without a lot of support. So Mandy is here to give us uh, some ideas about what's go- what could be going on, and I'm I'm really excited. We connected recently because uh, she was listening to this podcast, and so we had a conversation, and I, I convinced her to come on. <laughs> Hopefully, she's happy about it. But um, Mandy, do you want to just take a minute here and uh, let everyone know like what your background is and and what maybe what drew you to this uh, specialty in the first place? So uh, like Jana said, my name is Mandy Rocha. I am a pelvic floor physiotherapist. I currently work in Brisbane, Australia, but I'm originally from South Africa. We've been living in Australia for the last two years. I got involved in the pelvic health field. I've been qualified for about 14 years now and got involved in pelvic health probably about eight years ago. And I, I was doing normal physio, if you could say that in inverted commas, like sports, back pain, neck pain, all of that. And I just kept getting patients who had recurrent sort of hip pain, lower back pain. I was dealing with more chronic pain patients. And I just realized that there was a big sort of hole in my knowledge. And that hole was the pelvis. <laughs> there was a literal hole, um, not only just a figurative hole. And I realized how how little we were taught at university. The physiotherapy um, degree is, is massive. There's so many different aspects to it. So I completely understand why it is not highlighted in the undergrad degree. But I thought, oh, you know what, let me go off and just learn about this because I want to help my back pain and hip pain patients better. And then I went on the courses and just absolutely loved it. Subsequently had my own children. And that's normally where people go into the pelvic health field because they have kids and realize how unfortunately underserviced we are in um, the, you know, pregnancy postpartum population. And I've kind of just built on it from there. When I arrived in Australia, I got asked by a, whole bunch of people to run a practical course teaching other physios to do internal vaginal exams Um, and so I started doing that last year and have trained over 120 Australian physios now in that and I just do online courses as well I love teaching I'm extremely curious I listen to every single podcast I read every single patient orientated book um I I just I love knowledge I love information and I think when I was doing chronic pain and then I started in the pelvic health field and then suddenly I started asking people questions then I got into this whole minefield of the sexual pain (laughs) side of things and I think it's sort of like a speciality within speciality within sort of niche with niche within niche within niche and I have been fortunate enough to work with an amazing group of healthcare professionals in South Africa in a team called My Sexual Health um, head by Alna Rudolph she's a sexologist and it was just it is the most beautiful group. It's got doctors and psychologists and gynecologists and physiotherapists and now some occupational therapists and all sort of collaborating in the sexual health field. And that's probably where I learned the most and then sort of built on my own knowledge. And then I think word gets out. And when I moved to Australia, I was seeing mostly incontinence prolapse, incontinence prolapse. And now I see mostly pelvic pain, sexual pain. Um, You know, that's sort of what I get sent now. 
Can you explain to everyone the two branches? Because when we were talking originally, I had sort of lumped everything together with prolapse and incontinence and, mm -hmm. and then the pain. Could you, yeah, could you explain that? So I think pain is interesting. I want to say like, if we just take a step back from the vulva sexual pain side of things, um, pain is its own sort of beast. And if you have a look at the, the, um, definition of pain from the International Pain Society. It's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience with all resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but I want to just unpack it really quickly because I think it's important to understand that we are sort of brought up and you know through no one's fault and I think pain neuroscience has come a long way but that if I cut my hand it will be sore because I've cut my hand I will look there I'll see a cut and the worse the cut the more sore it will be and the smaller the cut the less sore it will be so we have sort of been taught that pain equals tissue damage so if you have pain, there is damage to the tissues and the worse the damage, the worse the pain. Yeah. And that's not true. What? That, that is, and so that's sort of the first thing is that pain is a sensory and emotional experience. It's a emotional feeling rather than something happening in the tissues. So it could be associated with actual tissue damage. But actually, if you think about pain, pain is a protective feature of our body. So, uh, you know, that our central nervous system produces to protect us. And it would be no good to protect us if we only experience pain after we experience tissue damage. So if we took, I'm going to, I'm going to get, uh, so yeah. bear with me, we'll get there. So if you took a toothpick and you started poking your hand or someone else's hand, you would start poking, start poking, and you would experience pain before you broke the skin with the toothpick. Mm -hmm. And you would experience that pain. Why? So either if you were poking yourself, you would stop. <laughs> And you would stop poking yourself with the toothpick. Or if it's someone else, you, they would swat your hand away. They would have a, a physical, perhaps an emotional response. What are you doing? You know, and, and whack you away. So our brain, our central nervous system produces a pain experience as a protective function, not as a result of tissue damage. And you've had it, like we've all had it. We're walking along and someone says, oh, you're bleeding. And you go, what, what, I'm bleeding. And you look at your arm and you think, oh my God, I'm bleeding. And then perhaps once you've seen that you're bleeding, it starts to ache or sting. Right. But you had tissue damage there and you had no pain. Versus we've all had the paper cut that sort of cripples us to our knees. That is excruciatingly painful and sort of objectively minor tissue damage. Um, or popping a pimple. I always say popping a pimple. If you have those back pimples that someone's popped, yeah. it can be excruciating. You know, you cannot sit through it. Very minor tissue damage happening. So I think that's the first thing to understand is that pain is not directly correlated with tissue damage. It can be completely separate and it can be completely emotional. If you've ever gone through, you know, someone close to you passing away or a breakup, or that's painful. You can have physical pain. There's no tissue damage there. But what I what I feel, even though I'm fascinated by this, and I, I'm guessing other women are feeling like this right now, is then it's not valid. If Absolutely. it's just emotional, then we're being these emotional women and making stuff up. And, you know, you when you go to the doctor, if you sit in the waiting room for a long time, or you go to the, we call them emergency rooms here, after, I don't know, eight hours of waiting and you get to the doctor, you really want them to say that you have an infection or something that can validate the experience that you're going through. 
I mean, we don't all want infections, but I'm, I'm just saying you typically just want like, yeah, for someone to say, yes, that thing is happening to you. You're not just making it all up. Absolutely. And this is where we now get into, yes, there is stuff that can happen in our tissues. There is stuff that can happen in our bodies and the physical sense that can absolutely be a reason for a pain experience to happen. And I'm going to go through the various ones. So we'll talk about the deep and the superficial and all of that. But I do want to make it very clear that just because you've got something going on in your body doesn't mean you have to have a massive pain experience. And just because you don't have something going on in your body necessarily that is objectively, you know, like a massive yeast infection or something, you can still objectively absolutely real have a massive pain experience and both of those are valid and true and I think that's the the thing to take away is that pain is not correlated to what's going on in your tissues your tissues can contribute to it but there are so many other contributing factors and I think of it and it is sort of a um a little bit of a simplification, but like there's a volume switch in your brain that, and your central nervous system and your peripheral nervous system. And, you know, every there's the volume switch that can turn the volume up or there's the volume switch that can turn the volume down. And it's all related to danger and safety. Mm. The more dangerous the situation that your brain has now interpreted, the more it's going to ramp up the volume because why do we have pain? Pain is there to protect us. The more safe we feel in a situation, the quieter we need to have that experience. It doesn't need to make us pay attention to that area because we're in a space of safety, which if you think about it in, in everything that you are teaching, physical and emotional safety, you are teaching physical and emotional safety. I'm saying to you that pain is about physical and emotional danger yeah yeah and we'll get into that we'll we'll talk about that and I I saw a light bulb went off there sometimes I have a very highly sensitive system and mm -hmm. so I often could go to the doctor but I hold off because I know my body is uh you know quite sensitive but those times when I think I've got to get to the doctor and I do get to the doctor and they say you're actually okay my pain will often decrease after that. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And that is your your body is, and, and we need to kind of think of our brain as part of our body <laughs> because I think everyone's like, oh, it's all in my head. You know, you're yes. saying it's all in my head. No, your head is part of your body. <laughs> your your central nervous system, your spot, you know, we've got our brain, our spinal cord, central nervous system. We've got the nerves that come out, peripheral nervous system. And then we've got all the tissues and connective tissue and vascular system and immune system. And it's all one person that has a body, a mind and a soul that all fits together. So, and if you think of it as, as, all the different things I, I say, it's all about buckets and seesaws. So we've got a bucket in our brain. I used to call it a mug. Now I call it a bucket because I think we've got lots of stuff going on. We've got a bucket that fills up with various things. Stress can fill our bucket. Physical tissue damage or, you know, that could fill our bucket. Uh, past experiences can fill our bucket. Uh, how we were raised can fill our bucket. And when the bucket overflows, it generates a pain experience. If your bucket is really overflowing, you're going to be in a much more dangerous, you know, nervous system situation. Your alarm is going to be going off. This, the, the more we can get out of the bucket, the less the bucket overflows the less intense the pain experience but we don't necessarily just have to take the physical side out of the bucket we can take some of the stress or the triggers or the beliefs or whatever it is out of the bucket mm -hmm. so I always like to start there because I think the interesting thing is that in the sexual pain field sexual or genital pain particularly in females people with female anatomy as you said, it's often just like, oh, have a glass of wine, you know, get on with it, just relax. Um, and the the physical side is discounted and it's made all emotional. So it, it it's just a very interesting, and I think there's, there's deep layers of cultural and um, medical and, you, you know, I want to say build the layers on layers within the 
you know, general systems. Yeah, um, even that leaning towards it's all in your head, so it doesn't exist and it's invalid. Mm. I wonder how much patriarchy plays into into that, whereas women are had been often lumped in that sort of emotional aspect and uh, just, you know, I, I have this book called Invisible Women. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. And it's basically the bias in the medical field that, uh, you know, researches male uh, pain, male experience, male uh, symptoms of heart attacks, for example, and how all the ways in which the medical field just really discredits women and doesn't support them. It's, it's, it's sad. That's basically what it is. It's sad, but it, and, it's, and it's a reality. And what I see is so many women suffer through this pain for years in their relationships. Mm. Is this what you see as well? Absolutely. So mm -hmm. perhaps we, perhaps now is a good time for us to segue into what are the physical things that can happen? Yes. Let's <laughs> because do it. There are absolutely tons of physical things that can happen there. Um, and then I just want everyone to kind of keep in mind that just because something physical is going on, if you've got tight pelvic floor muscles or the various things we're going to go through, doesn't mean you have to have an insanely painful experience and the converse. So if we, I want to say, if I jump to a very brief anatomy lesson of the pelvic bowl, because I think most people don't know the, the nitty gritties. And when I'm explaining things that might uh, make things more clear. If you think of your pelvis as a bowl where the rim of the bowl is the pelvic bones, and maybe um, Jana can put up a little picture, you know, that people can have a look on the um, show notes and the, the floor and the sides of the bowl are the pelvic floor muscles. So the rim of the bowl are the bones and then the pelvic floor muscles make up the bowl. We've got two different layers of pelvic floor muscles. We've got a deep layer, which is called the levator ani, but it's the deep layer that really is a bowl shaped. And then we've got the superficial layer, which is made up. So superficial means more shallow. So if you were to put your finger on the outside, you would be touching the more superficial layer. If you were put, to put your finger deep inside, that would be the deeper layer. And the more superficial layer has another whole layer of muscles that are completely different to the deeper pelvic floor muscles. And at the back, we've got the anal sphincter that goes around the anus. And at the front, we've got muscles that have big names like bulbospongiosis and ischiocavernosis. And you don't need to remember any of those. But what you do need to remember is that they go around the vaginal opening. So it is like a circle muscle with some other muscles triangular around it, but that they surround that vaginal opening right at the entrance. Then if we think about vulvas versus vaginas, that's a really important difference to make because, and we could go into a bit of patriarchy <laughs> talk here about vulvas and vaginas, but the vagina is a tunnel of smooth muscle that connects your uterus to the outside world. It is a structure like a sock that is made up of muscle that if you were to, just like you could dissect out a bladder and hold a bladder in your hand and you could dissect out a heart and hold a heart in your hand, you can dissect out a vagina and hold a vagina in your hand. No. Because it's structure. I did not know this. Yeah, so everyone thinks vagina is a space, right? That is the hole. The vagina is a tunnel of smooth muscle. Um, smooth muscle is the muscle that makes up our organs. And it is an actual thing. So when we talk about the vaginal walls, we're talking about the wall of that very specific sock <laughs> that connects the uterus to the outside world. And that is your vagina. Your vulva is everything you can see on the outside. So if, if you were to have a look, you're not looking at vagina, you're looking at vulva. And that's made up of various parts, the labia minora, the labia majora. And if you if you if if this is confusing you, I would, I would highly recommend going and having a Google and a look. Um, and you can Google medical pictures vulva if you're nervous about what you're going to bring up. And you can just have a look and, and sort of familiarize yourself with the order of the holes. <laughs> and how many holes we have um let's set the record straight how many holes do we have 
Handy. So if we go from front to back, the first hole is the urethra. It's a teeny tiny little hole that most people can't even see on themselves. Um, and that's where the wee comes out. The middle hole is the vaginal opening. It's the hole, the entrance of the vagina, um, which leads into the sock, the, the tunnel of muscles going up to the uterus. And then at the back, we've got the anus. That's where the poo comes out. Mm -hmm. So men have two holes. They've got a urethra at the end of their penis, and then they've got the anus. They're missing the middle hole. So the vulva then has the inner lips and the outer lips. So we've got the inner labia minora and the outer labia majora. But I think people are moving away from this majora minora story because some people's inner lips are much more prominent than the outer lips. And it's always interesting when I teach these courses because I've got 15 odd girls in a room and we are practicing vaginal exams on each other because it's the best way to model it. And I say to them first, number one, don't apologize for your anatomy because everyone apologizes. Sorry, I've got you know bigger lips, longer lips, shorter lips, no lips. Um, and two, we are going to see a lot of different, there's huge range and difference. And I'm always fascinated in those courses I'm seeing, you know, like 15 in a row, basically. And every single one is so different. Wow. I think, can we just pause here for a second? Because Absolutely. you have an opportunity that so few women get. Absolutely. You know, it's really rare and it's actually quite special that you could have a, I mean, we don't even see into people's closets, let alone their, their vulvas and vaginas. And Absolutely. there can be just so much self, uh, you know, insecurity and worries and fears. I've had women tell me they've gone to their doctor convinced they had uh, like a growth in their, mm. You, mm. yeah, in their, uh, in their vulva, in their labia in particular. Usually it's the inner lips hanging lower than the rest of the, yeah, that's usually the one that seems to get the most press. I don't know. It seems to. So I, it has the social stigma against it. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if you think from an anatomical point of view, it's great if those lips can be nicely closed, you know, we, we're protecting that opening and, it's all normal unless it's painful. All of it is normal. So unless it's painful, it doesn't matter. Um, Could you describe some of the variety that you see? Absolutely. So we have ladies where if we are, so when you're looking at someone, their legs are sort of, knees are apart, but we haven't sort of spread anything. We might just see two sort of folds of skin meeting and not much else. Then we separate and their labia majora, so the outer lips are much more prominent than the inner lips. They'll have very small labia minora that may or may not be... Um, hormonally so what happens is as you age past menopause and your estrogen levels get lower the labia minor the inner lips can actually decrease in size really so in some of the more elderly ladies that i see they may perhaps not have much of a labia minora at all and that often depends on what you start with so and then we can so we can have almost nothing in the inner lips to all the way where the inner lips kind of look like an oyster kind of you know so those like um curvy edges of the oyster that's coming quite far out so if you were sitting or lying with your knees slightly apart you would actually see the inner lips coming out of the outer lips and that can range in thickness. So we, we can have different lengths, but we can also have different thicknesses. So some could be very thin, the actual skin tissue, and some could be quite thick. And then we can have where it's not sort of all the way round like a full oyster. It could almost just be a, a 
what a, what a, what is my word? I want to say flap, but I don't like the word flap. No, I, um, yeah. Well, I can, I have the benefit of seeing what your hands are doing right now. Yeah, so it's, so it's kind of a smaller, got the it's like half yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. So half of it. And then there could be different um, lengths on the same person. So the one side could be the full long, um, you know, oyster looking thing. And the other could be just that small, um, smaller thing. And it's all normal. Slash, if you've had a vaginal delivery and perhaps um, you've had a bigger baby, they can have torn some of your labial skin and, and then it looks a little bit more asymmetrical. But again, all normal. And as long as that scar tissue is nice and mobile and non-painful, not a problem. Mm. And what about the clitoris and the clitoral hood? Is there a lot of variety in that? Huge, huge. And I always have a laugh on my courses because I say, what we're going to do for the first time, you you know, as, as physios, you know, we don't spend time looking at other people's vulvas. So now this is the girls on the course that come, the physios on the course that come, this is their first time. And I say, we're going to, all we're going to do is we're going to find the clitoris, the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. We're going to practice separating the labor and we're going to find those four structures. And they all sort of roll their eyes at me um, like, oh God, is this what we've paid for? <laughs> And then we do the prac, and then I've got Merity. I can't find the urethra, Merity. And then they're measuring things, and I'm like, no, no, that's the clitoris, not the urethra. So lots of different shapes and sizes. The hoods can be di different, the way that the skin sits over the clitoris or the glands of the clitoris. Um, the space between the clitoris and the vaginal opening can be very small or very long you know it can be up to three four centimeters between the two all normal the only thing that is perhaps not as normal and perhaps may indicate a problem is when the when you can't actually retract the skin of the so the hood if we're pulling that hood back the clitoris should actually come out the glands of the clitoris should be exposed we should be able to retract that hood so in conditions like lichen sclerosis, you can develop these clitoral adhesions where when you're trying to pull the skin back, it doesn't come out. But that would be painful or itchy. Mm. And that's not normal. We don't want itchy, painful vulvas, vaginas, anything like that. Right. So, but when you're saying it's all normal, what you're saying is this, having different structures absolutely. and having diversity and huge difference. And this isn't like an ethnicity difference because I have people of varying ethnicities and and a white person next to an Asian person, they might look very similar. And then we get another white person completely different. So it's got nothing to do with race or ethnicity or size. We can have a tiny person with quite significant labia minora, the inner lips. We can have a large person with quite a small vaginal opening and a, um, you know, tiny space between clitoris and um introitus huge variation now because i i'm dealing with sexual pleasure mm. what yeah the women i just because we're talking about clitorises for a second here i have heard and it makes sense mm. that the length between your vaginal opening and your clitoris would potentially impact your ability to orgasm with penetrative sex alone what are your thoughts about that i think orgasm has another whole you know um side to it and if you listen to emily nagoski stuff uh, she'll say orgasm is all in the brain <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the peripheral stuff but yes i, I want to say anecdotally and if you have a look at the way that the clitoris the anatomy of the clitoris how it comes and again google medical image clitoris if it's you're not, not sure just a little about. button just fyi there's no, a massive mm -hmm. and i i think it's got more to do with arousal so just like we can have an erect penis and i want to say that this is um controversial my husband deals with male um post prostatectomies that have uh erectile dysfunction and you can absolutely have male orgasms without erections right. your husband is also a physiotherapist it. we gotta just <laughs> he's so, not personally dealing with it he deals no with no he's a physio um but there is 
um, you need an erect clitoris and an aroused, engorged, blood-filled, erect vagina. If you've got a flaccid sort of sock that has no blood flow and when you look at the clitoris when it's aroused it's full of blood and it swells in size then suddenly if we've got something going into the penis that may be perhaps um stimulating it or creating a pleasurable experience versus if you are completely unaroused and perhaps sex is painful you're not going to have that really good blood flow to the clitoris engorging it and I don't think it's necessarily like have a look at your anatomy and if you are if your clitoris is more than two centimeters away from your vaginal opening sorry for you you're never going to have a vaginal orgasm no um absolutely not but I do think arousal and you know during a sexual experience or a penetrative experience doesn't matter whether it's a penis or something else penetrating the vagina if we're wanting to orgasm through that we're needing arousal yeah so I love I love that I love all of that (laughs) it's really good (laughs) yeah there's something about sex where we're just taught to go so I don't know I don't know if it's formulaic or factual or just uh it's so what's the opposite of holistic it's just so narrow and that that's how we're taught and so it's it becomes about the structures of the body and if i'm within the normal range with my structures rather than what's going on in my relationship and all of those things yeah that was a little bit off track so we, <laughs> we right. were we were starting with the two branches of yes, so the, now we're uh, do yeah. that. so now we understand a little bit about the anatomy so we can talk about dyspareunia so if you ever hear that term it just means painful intercourse so if we have superficial dyspareunia it's pain with intercourse superficially so we know that that's more at the entrance and then we've got deep dyspareunia at the entrance what can go wrong so maybe I must just also, there's a lot of caveats with this. I need to explain a few things. The diagnoses and the terminology in the sexual pain field, it's all a bit wishy-washy because if I say to you, oh, you have vulvodynia, what I'm actually saying to you is you have pain in your vulva. So dynia means pain. So vulvodynia means pain at your vulva. It's a symptom. I have pain at my vulva. I have vulvodynia. Um, I have pain in my coccyx I have coccydynia it tells us nothing about the what and the why so there are lots of causes of vulvodynia so there are and this is where I think if you get a diagnosis and I'm saying this in inverted commas no one can see me only Jana if you get a diagnosis of vulvodynia and then you and that means pain in your vulva and you are given a painkiller as in paracetamol or ibuprofen or you know something else that may perhaps dull the pain sensation but it's not dealing with any of the causes so what are the different things that can cause it there's so many things that can cause superficial sexual pain and there's many things that can cause deep sexual or genital pain it doesn't have to be with penetration it can just be um you know at any time so pain in the genital region we can have vulva pain caused by hormonal imbalances we can have vulva pain caused by the pudendal nerve so it's called pudendal neuralgia which is the nerve that supplies that area so if there's problems with the nerve at any point we can have severe pain there from postmenopause when we're in a lower estrogen state we can develop pain which is very hormonal um our breastfeeding mums and um, ladies that are going through cancer treatments that are on hormone blockers can develop a very severe pain at the entrance of the vagina. So at the entrance of the vagina where the actual um, vaginal opening and the urethra, and if you were to like link up those with the clitoris on the inside of the inner lips, there's a very different area called the vestibule. 
And if you hear someone having vestibulodynia, it is pain at the vestibule. That vestibule is a very different type of tissue from the labia minora, and it's a different type of tissue to the inside of the vagina. So if you think of it like on your face, we've got our cheeks, our lips, and our gums, different types of tissue. The same thing happens at the entrance of the vagina. That vestibule is a very different type of tissue. It is very um, susceptible to changes in horm hormones. So lower estrogen from menopause, breastfeeding, things like that, or um, your uh, combined hormonal contraceptive can also change sort of hormone profiles. We can develop a very severe, stingy, burny. Some patients describe it to me like tearing or ripping or being burnt with a cigarette. Um, pain at the vaginal opening, basically. So that we would call more superficial sexual genital pain. Then we can have, and there's a lot of other reasons that can be for that physical proper, and I say proper, and then I, I correct myself because I'm like, all pain is proper, right? And this is where we get it all wrong, but there can be actual physical things going on in the tissues. Then we can have more deeper dyspareunia, so pain with deeper penetration. That can be gynecological in nature, because remember, we've got our cervix and our uterus up there. So um, endometriosis, we could have some implants sort of around that vaginal region, causing a lot of pain. We can have bowel problems. So constipation, diverticulitis, inflammatory bowel disease, all of that can cause deeper pain. So that pain with deeper penetration. So those are the patients that say to me, oh, you know, certain positions are really painful. So it's not always painful. We can go in, there's no pain at the entrance, but the deeper positions are painful. And that can also be caused by just tightness in those pelvic floor muscles. So if you think of the bowl of pelvic floor muscles that form that big bowl, if those all tighten up and spasm, and then just like if you had a sore neck and someone came and poked you on your neck, it would be painful if those muscles are tight, they can, and they're holding a lot of tension, they can perhaps be sensitive to touch. So lots of different reasons. And then they all sort of... Um, make vicious cycles on themselves because if I've got a stinging burning pain like someone's poking me with a burning you know lit cigarette at my vulva my pelvic floor muscles are not going to be all wonderfully relaxed um they they're going to tense up and tighten and that would be what we'd call vaginismus where there's this involuntary spasm of all the muscles in response to potential penetration because our bodies are really clever and it says, no, I don't want anything in there. So I'm going to stop something coming in there. Mm -hmm. And then I want to say, I've only touched the tip of an iceberg. If I've talked about, it, I want to say there's tons of other things that can be going on. So if you are having severe pain, go get it checked out with the caveat that most healthcare providers aren't comfortable because they don't have a good knowledge in the sexual pain side, not because they don't care. And I think that's a big thing to remember is there's very few people that go into healthcare because they don't care about people, mm -hmm. but it is a little bit intimidating if you have someone coming to you, you know, with symptoms that you actually don't have any knowledge about. Um, so a, a really nice resource if you are struggling is um, vulvodynia.com. And they have a beautiful algorithm. Um, what is it called? I actually brought it up. The dyspareunia and pain algorithm, which literally takes you through. Is the tenderness at the vestibule? Is it the whole vestibule? Is it just the back of the vestibule? Is it the whole vulva? And then what the different causes are. And then the different treatments. So it's actually an algorithm for medical professionals. But I get my patients to print it, we print it out. And I circle what I think is potentially going on because I'm not diagnosing and prescribing medication. I'm helping with the pelvic floor muscles, but we circle what's going on. And then we, and then I send them to the doctor with that algorithm and it tells them exactly how to test it, exactly what medication to give for it, uh, exactly how to manage it. Um, and it's a really, uh, that, that um, website is a really helpful resource. If you are having superficial sexual pain, so pain at the entrance, particularly but also deep you know any pain you know sex intimacy there should be no pain and I say pain because remember pain is an unpleasant 
sensory emotional experience. So there is this fine line with, you know, various um, things with pain being part of it. But if, if you choose it and it's part of what you're wanting the experience to be, it's a, that's probably not an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. It's different. So, uh, yeah. Wow. I have so many thoughts about this. That is so empowering that there's somewhere we can go to, because yeah the experience typically is I'll go to my doctor they'll maybe do a few things maybe a an, you know an internal ultrasound or maybe a, an, an internal exam but typically it's like well I don't see anything major happening and then if they're not educated in the different modalities or even that you know physical uh, pelvic floor physio could help even then they're not even going to offer that suggestion or refer you on if you need a referral and even when you do see this was my experience i have uh, painful bladder syndrome it's also known as uh, interstitial cystitis and i developed that about a year and a half ago and yeah my experience was that i had to go through a couple of pelvic floor physiotherapists to get to the one that had enough experience uh, that she could guide me in the right direction. So it's just about not giving up and continuing to advocate for yourself if you're you're struggling because it's not okay. It's just not okay. It's not, you know, you, don't, you should not be experiencing this. This is something I actually wanted to talk about a little bit uh, is that, and I, and I know it might not be in your realm because you have women come to you and you're looking a lot at the physical. Um, but the idea that women want to fix the pain so that they can have their husband put his penis inside of them versus I am okay with sex not involving that, that there's so many other ways to enjoy pleasure and connection together. And, and I want to be able to experience that type of pleasure and I can't so it's a very it's such a different mindset do you get into that at all with your patients so absolutely because it is such an important such an important factor and I'm always I want to say fascinated slash dismayed that I have women who come to me who for 15, 16, 17 years have had burning cigarette, tearing pain at their vaginal entrance and have continued slash the other, you know, I think uh, I, I want to polarize it a little bit, but it's, you know, there's everyone falls somewhere in between the other um, subset that had one terribly painful sexual experience and have never, you know, never approach that again you know just don't come near me don't I don't want anything down there I don't don't need anything um and pleasure is such an important part of the whole picture when people come to me and they're having painful penetrative intercourse then I I say to them we need to take that off the table yes you know, oh my god I'm so glad you say that yes you can't have penetration if you're fearful and anxious in an intimate sense. So now there's lots of different ways to treat, you know, um, all these different things and vaginal dilators may be part of it. If we're needing to help stretch the vaginal tissue or, or, or desensitize sort of like a graded exposure of something penetrating the, um, the vagina, but we if we're going with partnered or self-intimacy, pleasurable experiences, we can't have that pain associated to it because then we're creating danger messages, right? If we're going safety versus danger, safety versus danger, we need to create safety messages in that space. Now, honestly, it's probably one of the reasons I was drawn to your podcast because it is an area that is very difficult and needs a lot of care and attention because there are such deeply ingrained um, personal, social, cultural messages about, you know, I've, I've got people that say to me, but that's what he needs. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it, it's interesting because sometimes I, I encourage partners to come with and, and my population I'm dealing with is 
cisgendered married women normally um, that are in a heterosexual relationship, I encourage the partners to come with and then the partners sit there with these big eyes and they're like, no, I don't want to put my penis inside if it's painful. And I'm the one that's telling you to stop. Mm-hmm. And then we have a, a little moment where they realize that, oh, hold on, they're the ones that are perpetuating it and not because of, um, you know, a very conscious upfront reason, but, you know, to unpack that. Now, my job as a physio is not necessarily to unpack all of that. I kind of say my job is to identify that we need unpacking of the bigger picture things and perhaps people pleasing childhood stuff that comes from, you know, various things. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm blessed to work with some really good psychosexologists, so psychologists working in the sexual health field. Um, but sometimes it's just education or for them to realize, I often say to them, if I took a cigarette and I burnt your arm, would you be okay with that? And they'd be like, no, of course, no, of course not. And if I burnt your arm every day for 16 years, would you be okay with that? No, of course not. And so, so why is this okay? And in a, in a healthy partnered relationship, the partner should not be wanting it to be painful. And, you know, the, the population I deal with, that's not. The, the partners are horrified. Sometimes they don't even know that it was that painful. Mm-hmm. So when they come in and I say, you know, describe what it feels like, and they say it feels like someone's ripping my skin apart, the, the, the partner's eyes are huge. And, and this is where it comes to communication. And it is, I, mean, I want to say there's layers and layers on that. And that's, that's why I, I really do appreciate your stuff and your program because I think it educates so much in that space that is so difficult in a in a healthcare appointment to deal with because I've got an hour with people once a week if I'm blessed enough to see them that much but I'm seeing them you know six to 12 times it's 12 hours it's not enough (laughs) it's not enough to do all of that plus deal with the actual physical side that's going on wow I I'm wondering if we, was there anything else that you feel like is really important to attach to this conversation? Because we may have more, but just this one, if you, is there anything you don't want to leave women wondering or, or hanging on? I think the main thing I want to say is that healthcare professionals are people. They are not gods or, and 90% of them do not think that they are better than you. I think people have this perception that they go to doctors and they think that they're up here. That has not been my experience. Your job at, in your body is to empower yourself with as much education as you can so that you can go. And it is impossible for us as healthcare practitioners to know everything about everything, particularly your, in Australia, we call them GPs, like your first line doctors, they've got a lot to know about, you know, in terms of all the different diseases and things that can happen. Sexual pain is very low on most of their priority lists because the life-threateningness to it isn't that high. So it's okay if they don't know, and they actually probably won't know, you know, depending on where you're going and and who you're seeing. And that's why you need to equip yourself with as much information and education and go to velvedinia.com and print out the algorithm and say, look, here, this is an evidence-based, you know, published paper. Can we, can we go through this together? If your doctor's not okay with that, then find a new doctor but most of the doctors that I deal with are so grateful that, you know, I, I send them those resources and things like that, but I send it with the patient. Um, they're so grateful for it because they're like, oh, thank you so much. I didn't actually, I didn't know what to do because healthcare practitioners are, are, are humans and humans are flawed and make mistakes. And um, I think it's, it's your job as someone inside your own body to use your own inner wisdom to recognize that there's something wrong. If someone's telling you there's nothing wrong, then you need to find a someone else, but also realize that, that they are just humans too. And they may perhaps not have that information. And if you can help them with resources, and I know we shouldn't have to, but we do. (laughs) And, and that just is what it is. 
gosh, you know, one thing that did come up and maybe you'll come back and we can talk about it next time. But I think a big reason why a lot of women don't go ahead and get support is because it can be really embarrassing. Absolutely. And so maybe, maybe if you would come back again, we could talk about what a couple of first appointments would look like. Maybe we could talk about what an internal exam is um should you wash up beforehand <laughs> you know like just just some practical things because Absolutely. i know even though i'm in this realm and i talk vulva and vagina all the time it was still really intimidating for me to go and get get those exams done so would you There's come a huge back shame and and there's huge yes fear. huge fear huge shame so if we could decrease that for women so that they can we can you know lower the barriers for for women to get help that would That would be really Absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. This was, Thank you this so was much a for having me. wonderful conversation. You should see my eyes the whole time, just like huge and just, wow, this is just incredible. And I, I know I can feel the relief coming off of the listeners right now, just, you know, just to have education at such an empowering place to be. And you're such a sweet woman too. You're just so, like, I just feel so relaxed. And that, like you said, it can feel a little bit odd with healthcare professionals, you know, like it's so professional, but you know, we're talking about really intimate, personal things. So it's just so nice. You have such a warm and, and loving personality. So thanks for Thank coming you. on. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I hope this has been a really helpful episode for you. If it has been and you'd like this podcast to reach more women who need more support like this, I would love if you would leave a rating and or a review. Okay. Until next time, talk to you then. If you've enjoyed this episode, I have a favor to ask of you. It's really hard to get the word out about a podcast about sex. What would really, really help is if you would leave a rating and a review. And I know that you get asked this all the time in different podcasts, but please, I beg you, it would really, really help so that more women who need this message will hear it. All you have to do is go into your Apple podcast app. It's the purple icon. And if you go to the podcast page where it shows my face, and has a little button that says latest episodes. If you scroll down past the episodes and you get to a section called ratings and reviews, there's a little purple writing thing that says write a review. If you click on that, it will ask you to give it a five stars. Actually, you can put any stars, but five is what I would love. And put a title and then write your review. Thank you so much for supporting this little venture here and I really am so grateful. If you are curious about wanting it more and how this program could help you want and enjoy sex more with your husband and you feel like it may be a great next step for you, you can go to janetdentonhouse.com slash wanting it more to sign up for the waitlist, to learn more, to see when we're running our next round. All right, that's it. I'll see you next one.